Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. Our usual time for releasing these episodes is 8 o'clock a.m. However, today, this episode will be released closer to 8 o'clock p.m. because I procrastinated in sitting down and recapping all of the things that I personally learned and took away from reading Hinterland and some of the things that I hope we collectively can take away from the information that was presented to us in Hinterland. And a common theme in this podcast series has been me releasing this specific type of episode late. I think for a couple of books that we've read, I haven't even released episodes doing the recaps and the reviews. And I think there's some deep psychological reasoning for that. And besides just the fact that I my, my procrastination, but that's neither here nor there. I want to say that we will go back and release recaps for all of the books that we have read, even if they are not currently released now. And so I want to apologize for this episode being released late. I know it probably will lead to some people not hearing it initially or some people not listening to it when they would listen to it. And hopefully they can be able to retroactively go back and listen to this recap of Hinterland, America's New Landscape of Class and Conflict. So I would like to ask people to please share a link to this episode on whichever social media platform you frequent the most often. And I would like to remind people that 98% of the times we release new episodes of Rafa Reading Daily at 8 o'clock a.m. across all streaming platforms. Now, Hinterland, America's New Landscape of Class and Conflict by Phil A. Neal is a book that was given to me by a community member in Rockford, Illinois last year. It was given to me at the occupation of City Hall, and it was when it was given to me, given to us organizationally, the person who gave it to me said that it was very important in speaking about the capitalism that we are facing currently today. And I think the first thing that stands out to me about my journey through this book, Hinterland, America's New Landscape of Class and Conflict, is the economic commentary that was made throughout this book. There was a heavy emphasis put on there was a heavy emphasis put on the way that the economy is set up in the far hinterlands and the near hinterlands being rural areas and suburban areas. And there was a concise effort throughout this book to talk about the how the economy is set up in in China and in places overseas, how the economy is set up in different ways throughout the United States of America. And it just gave me a very, it opened up my mind to how important it is to understand the, the landscape of the economy in these different areas and, and how understanding the economy helps you to be able to articulate some of the, the issues that we are facing. Throughout the book, Phil O'Neill talks about how mining in some of these rural rural areas contributes to the economy. He spoke about how the fighting of these of these wildfires that have been breaking out more regularly is part of the economy as well. How many people get their jobs through those industries? How much, how influential government is in the economy in these areas? He talked about some of the the way that the black market also is a very a very strong source of the economy in these areas as well. And I think. One of the things that was very 
interesting to me is how often he compared and contrasted the things that were part of the economy in rural areas and the things that are a part of the economy in urban areas or, or help the economy in urban areas. And I think that in the biggest similarity in both of those areas were people being dependent on the government for jobs and for the economy and the stronghold the government has on the economy and, and employment opportunities. And also the, how many people are dependent on black market and illegal, illegal avenues for the, for economy as well. And as somebody who is still learning more about the way that the economy works and the things, the minutia of the economy and how that plays into issues of police terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice, I was very much intrigued and I very much have a desire to learn more about terminology when it comes to the economy, learn more about the history of the economy in this country and in some of these specific areas. And so I think that that this book really opened up the door in my mind that it is important to understand the economy better. And each book that I read and each book that we've read collectively here, there is a initial thing that draws me to the book, which is something that I already have some type of understanding of. So capitalism and classism were some of the things that initially drew me to this book because I had some type of understanding of those things. And I was told that I would be able to learn more about those specific things through this book. But as I began to read the book, I was introduced to issues that exist in the rural places in this country, which I had not really read much about or taken much time to learn about. And so that door was opened up to me in my mind. And I have a desire now to learn more about the unique ways that police terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice affect people in these rural areas and the way that poverty affects people in these rural areas, the way that the economy uh, manifests itself or the way that the economy operates in these rural areas. And then this book also did a very good job of and it was very much sort of a surface level, a scratching of the surface, but of incorporating globalization and, and issues that happen outside of this nation into the literature that we were reading. And I'm currently also reading Freedom is a Constant Struggle by Angela Y. Davis right now for the Rafa Reading Daily podcast. And Angela Davis puts a very strong emphasis on expanding our struggles to a global level and the power that we get from expanding our our struggles to a global level and the limitations that we have on our struggle when we don't take the time to expand it to that global level. And so I'm very appreciative of Phil A. Neal incorporating globalization into, into Hinterland as well. This book also had a lot of terminology that I was unfamiliar with. And typically the books that we have read throughout Rafa Reading, the Rafa Reading Daily podcast, I have ran into terminology that I'm unfamiliar with and I've learned new definitions of words. And a lot of times I read, I open one book and I'll see a couple of words I've never seen before, find a definition of them. And then I'll end up reading a book or 
book down the line or two, three books down the line, and I'll be reintroduced to that terminology again. And I may not remember it vividly or remember it specifically from the first time that I had read it or was introduced to it, but I'm a step closer from to retaining it, if that makes sense. And so I'm thankful for some of these new concepts that I was introduced to by Phil A. Neal that I know I won't necessarily have fully retained now, but I'm a step closer to being able to retain them as I read more and more things that reiterate those those concepts and that and that terminology. And so I didn't know what hinterland was or what hinterlands were, the definition of hinterland until I read this book. And one of the things, one of the two of the terms that really stick with me are the terms for the far hinterland and near hinterlands. So let me get those definitions real quick. Okay, so Phil A. Neal says, the far hinterland is more traditionally rural, though now the rural is largely a space for disaster industries, government aid, and large-scale industrial extraction, production, and initial processing of primary products. Much of the far hinterland is also dominated by the informal economy, including black markets, the mass production of illegal drugs, or other contraband commodities and human trafficking, all of which is often synchronized with the formal economy. And then he describes the near hinterland being, by contrast, encompassing the foothills descending from the summit of the megacity. It is largely suburban in character, though this is something of a misnomer given the term's connotation of middle-class white prosperity. Due to its unique history of prosperous suburbia, the U.S. has its own distinct patterns, explored in Chapter 3, in which a demographic inversion in many cities has seen the transformation of old post-war suburbs into the primary settlement zones for new immigrants and for those leaving expansive urban cores. And those two terminologies, definitions, bring me to one of the next important aspects of hinterland that I believe, or one of the next things that that I believe I gained knowledge of from hinterland that is very important, which is the way that megacities operate and some of the economy around megacities, some of the, the, the ways in which megacities are changing our, our understandings of suburbia and suburban areas. And I think Phil O'Neill did a great job of articulating how as these megacities are being built and people are in it and they're tr attracting these young urbans to young urbans and professionals to come in and live in these megacities who a generation earlier or two generations earlier have been living in these suburbs because of white flight, how that's having the residual effect of having the black people or people of color or immigrants who once lived inside these inner cities that were impoverished and impoverished and deinvested in. And now as these, these, these mega cities, these inner city, the inner cities that were once impoverished and disinvested in as they are becoming gentrified, you see that, these young urban professionals are moving into the inside of them. The cost of living is becoming higher in these areas. And so that's pushing, again, the immigrants and, and black people and poor people out to the outskirts of these cities. 
And those suburbs that have now been abandoned have more affordable living, more affordable housing. And so black people, people of color, poor people are moving into those areas and then dealing with the issues and dealing with the circumstances that exist in these these suburban areas that are dealing with a lot of the same type of urban decay that led to them being created in the first place. And it's sort of this this cycle that that goes on of of white flight and of gentrification that happens. And the people who are, are the most vulnerable in those things are the people who are, are poor, are poor people, are people of color. And that really, that part of it really fits into the things we've read with High Risers by Ben Austin, the things we read in Evicted by Matthew Desmond, the things we read in Citizens, Cops and Power uh, by Ben Herbert, I believe. And some of the things that I've read in the book, The Color of Law, which eventually we will read in this in this podcast series as well. And so I think that that aspect of of mega cities and suburbia fits very much into some of the other things we have read about about housing and, and living conditions. And I think that, again, these are all different aspects that need to be understood when we're speaking about the issues of police terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice. It's not this these those three specific things that we at the May 30th Alliance target have so many different layers to them. And one of those layers is affordable housing, is neighborhoods, our locales, our communities and how those things function. Another very interesting aspect of this book is the commentary that was put forth about some of these far right groups, these alt right groups, these white nationalist, white supremacist groups that operate on in these rural areas in the West Coast and in the Southwest and and in the Northwest as well. And this was the first time I had really read anything that was dissecting those the ideologies behind those groups or dissecting the the agendas behind those groups. And I found it very interesting to see and to to be informed about the avenues that they were taking to organize people and to mobilize people. And I think that far too often we get into a place of not wanting to hear a perspective if it's not 100% aligned with ours or not wanting to hear an ideology or an experience if it conflicts with with what our beliefs are. And I'm very thankful for Phil A. Neal presenting those things to me because there was, I gained a deeper understanding of the commonalities that some of these groups have with each other. He talked about, or the commonalities that, yeah, the commonalities that some of these far right, alt right groups have with some of the 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 radical groups of that are against police terrorism and mass incarceration and racial injustice. And I know that can sound sort of conflicting, but I think one of the things that happens very often is that we can two sets of people can be dealing with the same hindrances and in the midst of trying to defeat those hindrances, they can cast other people facing those hindrances as their enemy. And I think that that is something that is documented as happening to poor black people and poor white people is in a, an effort to deal with the 
inhumane, unjust circumstances that come with being poor in a country of plenty, of a country of excess, that you begin to fight against other people who are poor because you see them as your competition for you to not be poor anymore. Or you fight against other people who are oppressed and exploited because you see them as your competition of not being oppressed and exploited anymore. And I thought that that was a very impactful part of the first couple of chapters of this book as well. I found it very interesting to learn about how segregated black people were in some of these rural areas, how how black people, how how high, how much higher the poverty rate was for among black people in some of these rural areas. And it awakened me to the fact that I have been very urban centered in not only my readings and my studies, but in also my ideology about issues. And I haven't hadn't taken into account anywhere near enough the experiences of black people in these rural areas. And I think that when we begin to advocate for black people, for advocate for the masses of black people, that means taking into consideration all the unique vantage points, perspectives and experiences of black people. And so I'm thankful for this book for enlightening me and giving me some statistics and giving me some information about the the struggles of black people in these urban areas as well. I think Phil Neal also, as we got towards the end of this book, did a great job of analyzing some of the uprisings that have taken place in this country around police killings, some of the uprisings that have taken place outside of this country around different issues. And I think that that analysis was something that was very important. I think it was a very, one of the things that we have to do when we are in these struggles, when we are when we are part of these fights is to have a critical assessment of our of our past actions, a critical assessment of our present actions and use that information to. To try to guide the course of our future actions, and I'm somebody who has, I hope, in these last two years, tried to be open to to critical to critiques of not only my actions, but organizationally the May 30th Alliance's actions. And we've dealt with a lot of different critiques. I think that part of part of struggling is not always just struggling outwardly against things, but also the struggle that takes place inwardly and finding and trying to figure out how to struggle outwardly against some of these things. And so there were some uh, critiques of of the, the the current struggles that are going on that I agreed with. There were some critiques that I disagreed with as well. But I think that the most important part is that he put forth those critiques. And as we got towards the end of this chapter, at the end of this chapter, as we got towards the end of this book, the final chapter, he began to speak about the Occupy movement that went on in this country. He began to speak about some of his experiences being inside of the prison industrial complex, being dealing with mass incarceration after being arrested and convicted from being involved in, in protest. And he gave a very impactful analysis of his experience in Ferguson, Missouri, which led to me picking They Can't Kill Us All by Wesley Lowry as the follow-up book to reading hinterland because that book picks up right at the beginning of the struggle that that took place in Ferguson, Missouri. 
And so I think the 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 wide array of issues and the wide array of areas in which Phil like Neil covered in this book was something that was very, very, very well done. He he it was a well and he covered these different topics, these different issues that can seem vastly apart from each other in a very uh, eloquent way. I also appreciated the way that he spoke about the the environment in these areas and spoke about not not necessarily the environment, but he did a good job of illustrating what these these different cities, different states, different countries that he was in, what they looked like, what they felt like, what the people looked like, what how the people felt, the experience he had talking to people and dealing with people. And I thought that that added a very humanizing effect to this book. And and the way one of the other things, too, is Phil A. Neal writes in a very unique way as well. I mean, from one of the things that I think I have learned throughout this Ride for Reading Daily podcast is that everybody writes in a different in a very unique way. And part of my part of my work as the person narrating or commentating or hosting the podcast has been trying to catch the cadence of these different writers and catch the rhythm of these different writers. And Phil O'Neill was somebody who it took me a little bit longer to catch that cadence and rhythm of, but once I did, I appreciated it very much. I think this is one of the books, half the books that we've read up to this point, I've read before half the books I hadn't read before. This was a book I hadn't read before. And I see myself revisiting this book multiple times in the future. A lot of the books that we have read within this podcast series, I think are books that you don't just read once and then you've taken everything you can get from it. They're books that you read, you go through life and you revisit. You read, you learn more things about what's pertained in this book and then you go back and you revisit and so this is a book that I very much look forward to going back and revisiting okay so I try to keep these recaps under 30 minutes because of the fact that we just went through hours upon hours of reading the book and a lot of times the writer puts these things not a lot of times the writer always puts these things in a better words than I could put them in. I think that what I personally have tried to do, and I've spoken about this before, is as I'm reading through these things, trying to put a an overall perspective on the unique specific issues that are being talked about in what we're reading and trying to link the information that one book may be presenting to information that we've gotten in other books. I've also been trying to do my best of if we read a book that's speaking about things in the past or a book that was written in the past, linking some of those concepts and some of those thoughts to things that are happening in the present and that may happen in the future. I've also, if we're reading something that's written about something going on in Chicago or Milwaukee, try to relate it to Rockford or something going on in Los Angeles or Alabama, try to relate it to Rockford. And I also have been trying to use this platform to get more comfortable with speaking about these issues, to get more comfortable with hearing something or reading something or seeing something and then immediately being able to to give an analysis or give it a commentary on what it is that is being seen or read or heard. And so I appreciate the people who have taken the time to listen to this podcast series for giving me the opportunity to 
to better my communication skills, to better articulate these things. And I know very much that I've gained a lot. Each time we get done with one of these books, each time I complete one of these, a full one of these readings, I can feel the growth and the evolution in my spirit, soul, mind, whichever one of those uh, things are more applicable to your belief patterns. But I'm very thankful for all of these different writers who have dedicated their lives to giving us this commentary and this analysis. And I, I also hope that one day I can be writing things like this and can be contributing and adding to this legacy of, of literate literary struggle as well. And so the, I think the last game that I really get out of this is finding my rhythm, finding my cadence of how I want to, to, to write and to, to speak about these things. Okay. So we will be back tomorrow, which is a lot shorter than usual because I'm putting this out late. I think this probably get out at like nine o'clock, nine o'clock at night. But I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast series. It means very much to me. I appreciate it very much. And I want to remind you that tomorrow, 8 o'clock a.m., we will begin reading They Can't Kill Us All, The Story of the Struggle for Black Lives by Wesley Lowry. And once we complete reading They Can't Kill Us All, we will begin reading Angela Y. Davis's Freedom is a Constant Struggle, Ferguson, Palestine, and the Foundations of a Movement. And so these, these three books, Hinterland, They Can't Kill Us All, and Freedom is a Constant Struggle, all take time to speak about the importance and the impactfulness of Ferguson, Missouri. And so I hope that anybody who is unfamiliar with Ferguson or some of the intricate things or some of the minutia of the things that went on in Ferguson can in these next weeks and months gain a deeper understanding and appreciation for Ferguson. Rest in power to Mike Brown. All right, I will holler at you tomorrow at 8 a.m. And remember, we put these podcast episodes out on a daily basis to provide you the opportunity to begin or further your journey in the struggle against police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice.